going to start. So, um, kia ora. My name's uh, Simon Kerr, and I'm going to chair this uh, illustrious panel. Um, I want to start, of course, by acknowledging the traditional owners of Wingery people of the Kulin Nation who have been on this land for, as we know, thousands of years uh, and uh, who have not ceded either. So we are here uh, by their good grace. And so we pay respect to their elders, past, present, and future. And I want to start by also um, apologies from uh, Angra Wynne Jones. So those of you who actually pay attention to things like uh, uh, the schedule uh, <laughs> was it's actually still listed I think one some versions of the of the program unfortunately she has had uh, she uh, is not able to make it uh, so delighted that Aviva Reed who we'll be seeing more of later today uh, a inspiring visual ecologist has joined us for our program. We're relatively last minute, so we're very grateful for you to yeah. jump in and take the challenge of answering some of these questions. Can arts promote or lead social transformation? That's the question. And if so, what sorts of roles can the arts play? So we know the challenges that we face. Many of us would have been if not read, at least be very familiar with the latest IPCC report, staying under 1.5 degrees. Uh, it is by far the most blunt of the uh, reports by the IPCC, and uh, the most scary. Uh, but also, it has a little window of hope that the science says that we have a shot at actually holding our temperatures within not safe uh, limits necessarily, but certainly uh, we actually can do something about it if we act now. So I guess the question we want to reflect on here is what role can art play in all this? I think it's easy to overplay the uh, influence of art. Um, if you ask the question to most people, does art matter, most people will nod wisely and go, Yes, of course, art matters. <laughs> Different when you try to get it funded. <laughs> it doesn't matter quite so much under those circumstances. Uh, but can it really be disruptive or transformative against the backdrop of the power of capital investment, of consumption, of politics, of even science and technology? So where does it fit? Art is not a silver bullet, clearly. Nothing is, really. So the more useful question is really about the roles that art could and perhaps must play in changing our culture. This dominant cultural narrative that I think is one of the major barriers we face to rapid transformation of our systems and our thinking and our culture. So to answer these questions, we've, uh, I've asked the uh, panel to give, uh, to give them about six minutes each <laughs> to um, just to start by saying, first of all, what, what they do in terms of artistic practice, so we get a sense of where they're coming from, things that they're excited about, and also to reflect very briefly on the question of why culture and telling stories in an artistic sense actually matter as opposed to doing good economic development or you know, more science or more technology. Um, and then uh, we will have a chat amongst ourselves, which you're welcome to listen in on, <laughs> and then we'll open it up and we'll have some conversation amongst us all. So, 
Prolman has uh, drawn the short straw to start off, so I'm going to put her a little slide up here. So Brian Johnson from Climb Art. Many of you will be very familiar with uh, the group of Climb Art. Um, and let me just see one more here. Yeah. And which one's here? Just the shift piece. Okay, good. I also would like to acknowledge um, the first Australians as the traditional owners of this continent. You just something fell out there. Um, whose cultures are among the oldest living cultures in human history, I wish to pay my respects to Elsa past and present and, with, and welcome any Aboriginal people who might be with us today. Um, this will be a presentation in six minutes about the work of Climart and within that about some of the socially engaged projects that we've worked on to date. From the outset, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the many thousands of experts in their fields, oceanographers, solar physicists, climatologists, biologists, atmospheric scientists, ice researchers, amongst others from the world over. Their research has meant that global warming is an accepted realm of scientific knowledge and has led me to undertake the work that I do today. So, what is Climart? Climart is an initiator, an educator, and a catalyst for artists and arts organisations to engage in climate-related and socially engaged exhibitions and events. We do this by collaborating with public museums and galleries across Victoria, commissioning artists and developing programs including keynote lectures, artist talks, panels for Climart's biennial festival, Art plus Climate equals change. So let's go to the art. So this is an installation by artist Rebecca Mayo, Habitus, which is at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art for our festival in 2017. Here in this installation, Rebecca Mayo was reflecting on the history of the Heidi site at Berlin and created imagery for a series of cloth, bag, cloth sandbags. Printed with dyes made from indigenous and introduced plants gathered locally by Rebecca, they are stacked to form a wall in the exhibition space, symbolising the crisis point of climate change and highlighting the cumulative impact of everyday habitual activities, the works entitled Habitus. The sandbag is wall is also a temporary structure that may not hold back the oncoming tempest. At Climart, we take the view that global warming was never only a technical problem. We see it as a social and cultural problem. The reality is that scientific facts and figures used to define the problem often fail to move people to concern or action. At Climart, we believe that art can, show, can not only show, but can make us feel the very problems we are facing. It can reflect on and interpret our predicament. It can enable us to imagine possible responses and visualise possible futures. So take this work that nearly killed me bringing it out to Australia. It's called Exit. This is an immersive 360 degree installation that visually correlates contemporary patterns of human movement with urgent environmental issues including climate change impacts. Data has been gathered from over 100 sources and is presented in a panoramic map form. It was exhibited at the Ian Potter Museum of Art up at the University of Melbourne. Exit was commissioned by the Cartier Foundation at a time when human migration flows began to take place on an unprecedented scale. 65 pe million people are on the move today, more than at the end of World War II. Um, so this, this particular work was around, had six thematic links and it was about population shifts, 
remittances, sending money home, political refugees and forced migration, rising seas, sinking cities, natural disasters and deforestation as well as losing um, Indigenous knowledge. This is a particularly controversial work for the Art Museum because we are bringing science into the art gallery. But at Climate, we believe that the arts can provide an important means by which we can begin to process the meaning of climate change into our lives. So, of course, you're all familiar with this great man, Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org. He stated in a recent article, here's the paradox. We're living through the biggest thing that's happened since human civilization emerged. One species, ours, has by itself in the course of a couple of generations managed to powerfully raise the temperature of an entire planet to knock its most basic systems out of kilter. But oddly, though we know about it, we don't know about it. It hasn't registered in our gut, it isn't part of our culture. Where are the books, the poems, the plays, etc.? In other words, where is the art? This is um, a work by David Buckland. Um, it's Another World is Possible. David Buckland is the founder of the UK-based organisation Cape Farewell. And his mantra is that climate is culture, pointing out that our understanding of and response to the climate crisis is reflected, shaped and focused by multiple cultural lenses. David is responsible for taking artists and scientists on voyages to the Arctic. This has included writer Ian McEwen, UK sculptor Rachel Whiteread, alongside teachers, scientists, musicians and choreographers. Um, working with David, who we had out here in 2015, led to an invitation for us to do a show at, um, in Paris in 2015 um, and we took the, artist, the work by Dr. Deb Simons. Basically I had no money and I could put it on a USB stick. This, um, this work is called Nature Mort, counting one to four as in degrees and this is another data rich digital work that looks at every COP conference, the conference of the parties and the subsequent loss of species since then. Um, I just want to show you a fantastic performance work just prior to the COP the Conference of the Parties in 2015. This work took place in May 2015. It was a theatre work based upon the, an improvisation of the actual COP conference, led by the renowned French philosopher Bruno Latour and collaborator Valérie Fillet at Sciences Po Paris. Developed, um, it looked at the UN's climate framework and a couple of hundred actors um, processed the information, they reinterpreted the information, and. And it was just fascinating to see what happened. There's a great documentary about this work when the desired outcomes they seek didn't happen and how they struggled to get forward. It was the rehearsal for COP21. I subsequently wondered in my own work if the Australia Council would ever fund such a work on any main piece of government policy because I'd like to think <laughs> it would lead to better outcomes for us who work in the cultural frame. Um, this is Angels on the Street, and this is the Climate Guardians, and they're Australian. And that woman in the middle is on the climate board, Deb Hart, who was a real privilege to be in Paris at the time of the World Climate Negotiations. There were artworks on the streets, posters on the walls, art in the subways, on buses, in every art institution around, around, around Paris. And the Climate Guardians, they were the hit of every demonstration that took place, and they were everywhere. Oh, my God. Um, this is Oliver Ellison and Mick Monick. I swatch here are two major works presented as part of Art COP21. This is the leading Danish artist Oliver Ellison. Um, Monique and Ellison shipped ice from the Arctic. I know there's some issues around that to create a, oh, a monolith that showed all delegates and the public climate change impacts happening now, showing in real time how fast, how very fast the ice is melting and the need for accelerated action. We got started by doing this 
this forum called Art Climate Ethics, What Role for the Arts, and that led us to 1,500 people turned up and that led us to developing a festival. This, um, because that's Fiona Hall in that image and I've worked with her before and Fiona was one of the, you know, honorary New Zealanders who went on this fantastic voyage um, to the Kermadec Trench, which is the Pew Foundation, it's north of the North Island of New Zealand. Um, they're looking to turn that into a marine fish. It's where all the plates work and it's very seismically active. I'll just go through a couple of other things. This is the fantastic um, work by Yoni Skes. Um, she's one of the first contemporary Indigenous Australian artists to explore the political and aesthetic power of glass. That was up at Tarawara. That's all about the Wimmera. I encourage you to look her up. This is P Penelope Davis, who is looking at um, the monstrosities so, of what's happening to our waterways. So exhibitions to date have considered themes of urban expansionism and forest activism tackling our romantic views of nature and uncovering through powerful image, imagery the slow violence of ocean pollution. We've had exhibitions that consider land degradation and potential refuge. We've looked at issues of mining uranium on unceded Aboriginal lands and discovered the many unremediated mine sites across Australia. We've considered clean water and water futures and contemplated a future evolution that may well be monstrous. Um, am I good? <laughs> Just um, in conclusion, Climate works on a number of projects, including the poster project that's um, John Campbell, the Great Barrier Reef. This is Mile Howard Wilkes, which is, he's an outsider artist of an organisation I chair called Arts Project Australia, where we have 123 artists with intellectual disability um, in the supported studio. And that's Angela Brennan, the future is not what it used to be. And that's <coughs> Catherine Haddam, who's a poster for us that we put all around Melbourne. Um, is renewable and her, her take on it with renewable energy is blue and it's a happy blue and that's what it should be. <laughs> so this is a political poster that we did with Gabrielle Devitri and Will Foster that raised the ire of the IPA amongst others and that was when um, and this is Arts Climate Exchange, our festival, which will happen from the 23rd of April to the 19th of May next year. And I'd like you all to come. So. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to swap maybe with Tim? Shall I tell me why? I don't need Oh, this way then. Okay, I'll be back. And, uh... So Tim Holland is no introduction, I don't believe, but good friend. Wonderful musician. Tim, please introduce yourself. Thank you so much. Um, so, I am slightly fraudulent speaking here as Great Music Australia because I know I'm a Music Australia, but um, I did found it about six years ago. Um, after a, a, a good decade of gest gestation of the idea, um, as a musician and an environmentalist over many, many years, um, I was getting, it kind of came from two, two points. <coughs> One, as a, as a musician who cares about the environment, getting extraordinarily frustrated with the fact that, that you know, as a musical sector, as a community, we are full of forward-thinking, thoughtful people, and yet have this extraordinary outsized environmental footprint, waste streams, emissions. Um, and while individuals were doing things about it here and there with my band, Foreplay, we were you know, making sure that our CDs were, were packaged in recycled card, printed with sort of 
you know, it's all of that kind of stuff. Um, as an industry, nothing was being done. Um, and people kept saying to me when I was talking about it, well, somebody needs to do something about it. Um, the flip side was I'd also been working as an environmental campaigner with Greenpeace, the Greens, various others over many years, and getting increasingly frustrated about the fact that we were losing, and losing very, very badly. Um, and my analysis of that was, you know, the, the old metaphor, that, that, or the old story that a lot of us talk about, that if, you, if you're doing the same thing over and over again and it's not working, that's kind of the definition of insanity. Um, and one aspect that we were not working in was culture, cultural change. Um, and as a, a long-time kind of fan and student of, of Gramsci, um, feeling that culture is at the heart of, um, of society, of systems, and obviously of change. Um, one of the most beautiful articulations of that idea of culture that I know is, is from Arlene Goldbard, come across her, American writer and artist, who says, our capacity to act is conditioned on the story we tell ourselves about our own predicament and capabilities. Um, and that to me is where art and culture come in as, as an extremely powerful part of social change. So I set up Green Music Australia with these kind of these two focuses. One, uh, to be primarily working with artists and people across the music industry to reduce our own environmental but primarily not to do that because we're such big polluters, you know, we're not the aluminium industry. Um, but to do that because by taking action, by acting, we can influence culture. So the really big focus of what we've been doing practically for the last few years has been um, waste streams, plastic waste streams from music festivals. So anyone's been to a music festival, you know, by the end of the day, you're wading through plastic waste. So working with music festivals to find solutions to change that, and the cultural impact of that, of that leadership, um, I believe, is very great. Um, one of the things that I was privileged to do early on with Green Music Australia um, is a, a chunk of research that um, a friend of mine at ANU passed on to me, funding to do, I interviewed Bronwyn um, and various others as part of that, um, talking to a whole lot of people as well as doing a whole lot of reading around what is the role of music in social change in arts more broadly. Um, and I kind of identified three particular roles for, for music in particular, but art more broadly, um, in social change that I think is worth teasing out and maybe using as part of the discussion. The first is the most obvious. Music has an impact on how we receive ideas. Um, in, you know, drawing attention to ideas, most obviously things like you know, Live Aid and, and, and Live Earth concerts, that kind of thing, spreading ideas more broadly, but not just raising attention and spreading, actually opening our hearts and minds to receiving ideas in different ways. And those ideas can be about science, they can be about impacts, they can be about solutions. In all sorts of ways, art opens the door to receiving those ideas. Um, Second really important impact is not just ideas but, but cultural. Music can contribute to shifting cultural norms. Um, and I think it does that in, in two really important ways. One is that it, it, um, 
plays an extraordinarily important role in our own identity. Our, mu our musical tastes are very much wrapped up in our identity, who we believe we are. Um, the most extraordinary, um, actually, that's been overtaken. There was a, a fantastic um, uh, Ted Cruz, I think it was, um, in, the, in the Republican primaries a number of years ago, was asked what his favourite music was, and he said, well, I used to like rock and roll, but since 9-11, when the rock industry's been so traitorous, I can't listen to rock anymore, and I only listen to country. Um, the, just the other day, um, Donald Trump um, was asked about Taylor Swift's intervention. I don't know if people saw that, but Taylor Swift came out and encouraged people to enrol to vote and vote for Democrats. And Donald Trump said, I now like Taylor Swift's music 25% less. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just a couple of interesting ideas, examples of how our musical tastes are really wrapped up in our identity. So if musical leaders um, can help influence people's thoughts in that way, it's really powerful in, in both directions. Music is also a really powerful social legitimizer. Um, some of the, the fantastic examples of that, um, I found a, a Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine talks about um, how um, talking about ideas and expressing ideas through music legitimizes it for the fans to also express those ideas. Um, and he says without even trying, he, he mapped out um, that campaigning organizations, in particular radical left campaigning organizations, were able to recruit um, volunteers and members much more successfully the morning after Rage Against the Machine was playing in town, time after time. Um, so music plays that extraordinary role as a social legitimizer. One of the most fascinating for me as well um, is that music can actually shift cultural values. Not just cultural norms, but cultural values. Um, many of you hopefully have come across the work of Common Cause. Um, was mentioned in the, in the previous session, Angela Rutter was here yesterday, hopefully she's here again today. Um, Common Cause is based on a whole lot of research on how values interact with each other in our minds. And the, the basis of it is that they've demonstrated um, in, in various, a range of various studies, that if you activate certain values, um, priming people to think about certain ideas in certain ways. It actually supports values that are, that are connected to them and suppresses values that are opposed to them. So for instance, um, if, if, minute, I, one minute. if I prime you to think about um, helping people around you, caring for people around you, and then ask you for your opinion about environmental issues, it's demonstrated that you're more likely to express support for environmental issues, even though we haven't talked about environmental issues at all. Um, if I prime you to think about wealth or power, and then ask you about caring for people around you, you're less likely to express opinions and, and behave in ways that support caring for people around you or environmental issues. The reason I raise that is because up there in this, what they term intrinsic value sets, alongside um, helpfulness and caring and, and, and environmental ethics sits creativity. So getting involved in creative activities actually supports intrinsic value sets. So the more we get people engaged in, in creative activities for the reasons of, you know, the intrinsic reasons of creativity, 
not for you know, earning money out of your art, which is another question again, which doesn't happen, of course. Very rarely. Um, that actually supports pro-social and pro-environmental um, values and behaviours. So, yeah, I think I'm probably done with that freeway. So, expressing, yeah, helping the, the, the transmission of ideas, shifting cultural norms and shifting values. I think those are the ways that art helps social change. Can I come over here? Which one is yours? have a background in science and I did a bit of Masters of Environment. I majored in the symbiosis of pedagogies, so the idea of teaching through art and science. I would argue that art is everything and that creative thought is developing an awesome policy or a educator is an artist or especially if they're a great storyteller. I have then gone on to do my life I'm a pretty um, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary. I do a lot of illustration. Um, my illustration starts as research and I illustrate for lots of different um, projects. I also do a lot of work illustrating for threatened areas. So this work here actually looks to the Teotia of the Tarkine and it's, um, I've, I've taken it to probably about 50 schools just in this term. And I usually just do it as like I'm just here as an art scientist person, but really I get to talk about Tarkine to a lot of people. I do it also at um, tertiary education, so I, I teach at RMIT. So this is showing, I can explain through this work, that the Teotia relies on a riparian zone that has like a whole root system that keeps, it, keeps the whole river together, which allows the baby Teotias to hide under rocky um, rainforest creeks. And then I let the students then tell me what they think and feel and what the colours make them feel like. And we can kind of go on a journey of each other's self-discovery and seeing how different people see things differently, which allows us to learn a lot about each other. So that's one example of how I use my art. This is another one. This is um, an image from my book called Eon, Story of the Fossils. So my, my thesis was actually subtitled Building Ecological Ontologies. So it was a way of building ecological ways of being and it was through using storytelling and art, but based in, in science. Of course, my science is constantly um, re-evaluating the meta-narrative of science and that that's an important role for the arts. So I'm a massive, um, I'm still really frustrated never to see people like Lynn McEulis getting quoted, but Darwin getting quoted and um, a whole bunch of awesome other scientists that have been rewriting complete different narratives to the competitive evolutionary nar narrative into mutualism. But this work here is the Cambrian era 500,000 years ago. Another thing I sometimes like introduce to people, they call it the Cambrian explosion. Some would say that that's like a um, military language. Big bang, maybe military language. 
um, just being really hyper-vigilant of that. And then even if I don't agree with that, I still put it out there and hopefully my students usually argue back. And that's then fostering just critical thought. And that's actually what I feel like the main part of art is. So I've actually got a few things. I'm kind of going to remember what I've put in here. Oh, this is a work I, so I illustrate for Small Friends books through um, published by CSIRO and their books on microbes and mutualism. So this actually comes from Zobi and the Zooks. So it's a story about coral bleaching. Mm. We decided to call it Zobi and the Zooks, a story of coral bleaching and not the end of the rainbow because there's all this like ideas around, do we stick with our grief or do we go into the hope? This is looking at the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences work and it is actually their work that goes in and kind of gardens the coral reef. So it's like highly human interventionist sort of saving the coral reef. They've discovered that rhizobium bacteria, this is actually, I'll describe this picture. So this here is meant to be using archetypes. We're kind of played with archetypes. Um, this is a psi, cyanobacteria. It's kind of the elder, one of the most ancient organisms on the planet. We've all evolved from it. And it's kind of providing some information to Zobi, the rhizobium bacteria. So the Zobies are the ones that can kind of keep coral alive when they're going through a bleaching episode. So they're nitrogen fixers, so that's all described in the story. So it's like rigorous science, but it's all within a narrative. Um, this work is actually showing that the Australian Institute of Marine Science has discovered that some clades of Zooxanthellae, which give coral colour, have the capacity to survive warming episodes, so they're actually gardening the reef with a particular clade of Zooxanthellae. Once again, highly philosophically problematic. Are we reducing our genetic pool of zooxanthalase, but are we keeping our coral reef alive? Really good one for people to have like a big think about. Like we've already made such a mess, we should be fixing it. That's what some students will say. If you, if you knock the cup over, you should clean it. <laughs> and then someone say, we've already made such a mess. So like you can imagine your four students having a big rigorous discussion about it. <laughs> this is sort of a little precursor to what um, a small version of what we're going to be looking doing this evening. This is a um, soil biome immersion. Mm. So this is sort of where I'm actually moving to more and more of my practice. And that's the idea of art as a form of ritual and ceremony. <laughs> and I think that, actually I was having a conversation, so someone said, there's already heaps of ceremony still in the legal system. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, there really is. And then I was like, so where's the ceremony in the um, agricultural sector? Like there once was a whole bunch of gods and goddesses that were part of the corns, part of the earth. There was actually a whole culture and like the harvest and like all of this stuff was actually part of, of the psyche of society and, and a way of coming together, developing community. So that's sort of where I'm slowly moving and merging to and I do try to go into my school and uni environments and perform rituals and ceremonies. But I'm calling them... Slowly they call it the sort of science ritual, I don't know, I haven't got the right name for them yet because rituals is a bit loaded, sorry, ceremony is a bit loaded. So science. And science is a bit loaded. <laughs> I've even actually, but I like using loaded ones because it allows us to have these conversations. So one of the ones was resource rituals. Because, because actually what I do go in to do is I'm, I'm a big old school forest activist and I actually go and build big altars as blockades. And so that's sort of like this resource. So my actual understand, I've got a lot more science in forest ecology. But um, anyway, all of them are, are valid. But I did write a few things that I wanted to make sure I covered. 
<coughs> so ceremony is a transpersonal process, so this whole idea of ecological ontology, so the ability to sort of um, reshape our, how we be in the world, which I think art is certainly an avenue towards. Um, whilst my work often seeks to educate scientific ideas at the time, each work I'm aware of the metaphors I perpetuate, and I seek to redefine science and our idea of it. So my work seeks to activate the spectators as actors. So everyone in this room right now is actually, we are in a, in a creative play right now. I'm actually like some strange like performer for you. And you guys are all performing for me <laughs> as like beautiful listeners. <laughs> so like it's, it's, it's a space of, of collaborative co-creational becoming. And um, we need to use our agency within these spaces. So the resources, stories and insights become our provocations for our discussions for collaborative redefining. So um, it's all about uh, the, other, the other angle that I usually work hard on actually, and that's what I do with this and with my illustrations, is the space of the imagination and the capacity for our ecological imagination to grow and for us to, to, to build really strong imaginations. And it's actually this space of borders and um, imagination, if you want to sort of think about it like that, where we can kind of actually open up the borders and, re and remove them um, because only through having that really rich imagination are we able to like conceive of the limitless potential and possibilities that exist. So my main mission in my teaching and my creative pedagogy is around embracing change as the norm and encouraging people to sit very comfortably and safely within change as the norm so that it's an exciting space and not a scary space. And that's what I try and do with my art. Wow, okay, this is getting exciting. Mm. Getting um, inspired. Simon, you have to be able to control the time and control the time. It's beyond my power. Is that a kilometer behind you over there the lights or is that a small one? No, it's an installation. It's a side of things to come, I'm afraid. Climate warming. This is what two degrees more. So, um, one more. And I'll try to be faster. We have some conversation here. Um, so, I worked most of my professional life at, at universities, both in academic and professional roles. I've done a lot of thinking about climate change, and I'd constantly go to seminars and conferences and various things where the sort of general guess of it was, the conclusion would be something along the lines of, um, so in conclusion, it looks like we're all going to die. <laughs> something along those lines. Thanks for coming. Let's go and have a beer. And part of me felt like yelling. But how does this make us feel? And then the sciences, I loved the science. But where was the emotional engagement? And I was, so I'm a musician in addition to the other things that I do. So I thought, I'm going to try to do something about engaging around the story of climate. So in the end, 
and creating this thing called Music for a Warming World. My band and, my, and Christine, my partner who's here, is the co-producer of this uh, little beast. Um, and so, 2016 we launched this uh, uh, show. It was a, um, essentially a multimedia show. So, we used live visuals. This is a live concert with the band. And it runs for about 75 minutes. Uh, thereabouts uses immersive visuals and video, small amount of text to uh, to tell a story. And we thought very carefully about what the story should be. So we created this narrative arc, and I'll just run through very briefly what this is. And then we'll, um, so we start with a storm, which is a metaphor for the science, I guess. Uh, the rise and rise of carbon dioxide, the rise and rise of planetary temperatures, and what that will mean, and the very bad news what is, of what is coming. Then we move into what I think is a really important reflection, a series of meditations on loss. Uh, loss of heritage, loss of memory, loss of landscape, uh, and just the, in, both individual and collective um, level. And we often perform this for community groups who collectively can reflect and experience through music and the visual cues <coughs> about what this loss may feel like. <coughs> we don't stop there, of course. We move into change or action. And then we actually run through a whole bunch of stuff that is happening. And often we stay in touch with clearly the, the renewables revolution, which not everyone we perform for is across. And you know, leaving fossil fuels in the ground, coal's been a one. We have some lovely interactive uh, odes to coal, or farewell to coal songs. <laughs> and Tim's been uh, graciously a part of this song on several occasions, these uh, uh, shows. Um, and uh, social inclusion and social justice, climate justice, we talk about all those things. You know, Naomi um, Klein's um, uh, This Changes Everything. We have a wonderful big reggae number around, this changes everything. And then, we don't stop there. We move into, finally, a meditation on hope. Uh, a meditation on living. Um, collectively imagining a future that's worth living for. Simplicity. Things that this conference, obviously, focuses on. And we finish with, uh, with a reflection on living with impermanence. We are living with, there's nothing permanent about any of us nor our planet. And so we reflect on that. As a means of bringing us back to becoming centered after this really tough message. So that's what we do with uh, this show. We've performed it probably 60 times now. We don't do it full time, we've all got day jobs and various things. Uh, music festivals, art galleries, community groups, universities, so forth. We're playing at the Woodford Folk Festival. So any of you are going to be in Woodford this year. Uh, do come along and see us. Um, what we're really trying to do is this. We try to engage people's subjectivity. How they feel about stuff, this stuff. 
Now these are actually real kids. These are. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, as opposed to next off the inter the interwebs of these are my my two and only grandchildren. They're non-identical twins, um, and they will live to at least 2,100, if not beyond. And so this is really real for them, and really real for me as their grandfather. What happens with life? Um, we wanted to create these emotional connections. And that's what I think the power of art and visual art and music can actually do. Connect people with these musicians. So we recently attended a, a climate panel in Melbourne uh, where the speakers told us how dire the climate trajectory was. When the session was finished, I took a number of people. They were all depressed. I was depressed. Our collective brain chemistry was depressing us. And I thought we needed an emotional circuit breaker. And what we should have had after that was some artistic intervention, like you're going to be doing later, and like we do with the band, to bring us, to recenter us back into ourselves and to our community. Because without that, we will lose hope. Well, at least this is one way of doing it, so the other way, one way of doing it. Um, and so I guess behind all this is this critical question, and I think everyone's touched on it in a beautiful way, uh, as to why art matters. And I've been thinking a lot about the role of um, climate as culture, and not just as science. We don't need more science in order to really move us forward. We do need more science, but, but not actually to convince us at all. Um, art cannot lower atmospheric carbon levels by itself. But carbon emissions and all the other environmental impacts from, come from humans, how humans act. And how humans act is powerfully shaped by the stories we tell ourselves. But this is not new, I'm sure, for all of us. Stories shape culture. And so. This is why Cambridge geographer Mike Hume has some wonderful work on this stuff. has been arguing for a long time, if we want to deal with climate, we must deal with culture. Because culture frames the way we, we see it. So in our communities, so doing stuff in our communities, I think more understanding about culture. And this is where I think the role of artistic intervention is so important. Although do these stories about music, they can connect us to our emotional lives, energize us, and help us not get stuck with grief. And they can help trigger some new part of our brains and maybe some new novel creative thinking around how we can imagine our future. It can create a shared sense of mission, and it's been touched on very powerfully here. And eventually, I'm thinking the Anthropocene, or whatever we wish to call it, this new epoch we're moving into, will touch everybody's emotional self. And the arts, therefore, along with the sciences, can help us prepare for this. So that's what I want to just mention. Um, and now, time for some conversations. I want to throw a question out to my, my colleagues here. Um, so what can we as artists offer that science can't? We've touched on some of those things, maybe we reflect a bit more. And how can we avoid art being seen as just a nice promotional tool 
for the real thing, the science, or just entertainment, always seeking to the main to, to the main plenary speakers with the really important things to say, <laughs> to be provocative. How do we make it less not just an add-on, but actually build it into the sort of things we do, including things like conferences? Mm. What's the crack of that one? Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll give it a red hot go. Um, so, Climart established before me, so it's by three people, but I came on to produce programs and I looked at my community in the arts and said, well, what are we doing about this? You know, art doesn't operate in a vacuum, it operates in a highly globalised context, you know, artists take things from, you know, rain, rock, steel, from everywhere and it just seemed to me that there was a group of people I knew as curators and directors of museums that needed to do something and anyway we got together and they said an amazing thing is that they like being involved in it because it gives us a sense of collegiality and going back to your other point around because it is dire there's you know days in my office that I'm just going <laughs> Oh, don't think I'm got the dinner and open me and not come out. But um, there's a great book by Mary Pfeiffer, which is called The Green Boat, and it's around psychologists for action on climate change. And she, the American, did this. It's all these protests around the tar sands. And, but this group of you know fantastic people, um, you know, a, a very grassroots organisation, always come back to her, her house and have cake and a cup of tea and talk about what they've done today. Did they win, did they lose? But we're out the next day or the, the next weekend. And I think it's really important that we connect as a group. And this is what I think in the arts, we have this most enormous community. So getting back to the work of climate, you see the museum and the gallery are a trusted space. There's all this research that you can pick up through OSCO or Creative about trusted institutions. But what happens to our institutions when they're taking money from Rio Tinto and you know, and they don't want to be involved because it's challenging or that we can't take our kids to museums to say to see what is climate change, what is the new epoch, the Anthropocene. You know, because all of our kids are being taught about this in primary and secondary school. And you know, it's shocking and we are kind of taking the mantle along, pushing this in a direction to make these changes. But um, the trusted space of the museum and gallery means that artists can make what's called a socially engaged pro project and people can come and view it and it's not pointy-fingered activism but it's that space, that clear intellectual space for people to contemplate ideas and thinking so that they'll come out and say, oh, there's a panel about that, I might go and talk to them or be involved in that. I know we've got to, we do other very pointy-fingered work as well, which we don't really talk about, but um, we talk because we're doing some, some stuff that could get us into trouble. But apart from also, um, you know, like poster projects and things like that with Murdoch Press, but workshops for artists, you know, we've had a whole series of things that we've done and which led to, you know, various demonstrations and things like that, which actually engendered some change. So that's all I can answer that question. Um, the, the question of how do we make it not just to the edges, um, I feel that is shifting dramatically um, in the years that I've been working in this area. And I think partly because people are, people are demonstrating that they want to do it. Um, 
I've been really struck by how over the years, you know, coming into forums like this and talking about arts, you had a dribble of people, and in the last couple of years, these forums are packed. Mm -hmm. That's why we're all stinking hot in because yeah, they, they still often get allocated small rooms, but everybody wants to come and talk about it. Um, it was a fascinating one at the Progress Conference a couple of years ago here in Melbourne, where people hanging, were hanging from the rafters. You know, this is a conference of people talking about progressive politics, and a couple of us put on an arts session, and everyone wanted to talk about it, so I think that is really shifting dramatically. Um, no, it didn't used to be like that. And I think people are really picking up on that and perceiving the importance of it. Um, the other thing I'll you know, just reflect on is I think that question goes to a whole lot of the questions that we're talking about more broadly across the conference in terms of the questions of the new economy, which are the questions of what is currently prioritised in our society and what is currently squashed, you know, like Elsie was just talking about. In the previous session, um, patriarchal white Western views of the world and everything else gets shoved to the side. Arts are seen very much um, as the feminine um, and hard sciences, the masculine, that's what's important. The arts are at the edges. Um, and I think as we shift, we are, we are part of that process of shifting. But at the Eco Cities World Summit last, last year, they had, uh, they had culture as a column for the first time, fourth column. And so we were all invited to that. We didn't have a huge turnout because there were so many other plenary mm -hmm. sessions yeah. on. But um, we gave it a red hot go for what it's worth. But I thought that was a fairly big shift too. Mm -hmm. what, how can art be brought? How do we move from the edges and, and in a sense take the power of art, which we've discussed, and make it, um, and, and as I say, deal with that dichotomy between the, you know, the real stuff, the science, the talk, just and then the well, I guess I guess my talk was actually agitating that ideal and saying that you could actually be an artist in any moment, in any place, doing whatever you do. So it's kind of also getting rid of our own boundaries and borders about thinking and embracing every single conversation and moment you have as a creative opportunity for interactive. I words coming as COVID coming, which at the moment. Which, um, like, I know that's a very um, philosophical kind of take on it, and I'm not doing a big meta narrative, but I do think that it has to start with, like, I know in my uni life, my academia, which doesn't actually hold space for arts, I teach a very pointy end hard science subject, and I still make sure I get a bit of art into every session because, like, if you can, you can, you use your platform and you embrace it. I think it's only in the last 120 years where the arts and sciences have been so separate. Mm. You know, one of the things that we talk about is getting out of our silo. You know, we have the University of Melbourne as a partner, a knowledge partner, which means we've got access to you know, great, great minds. And um, so we engage them in a participatory way in all aspects of our programming. Mm. Because, you know, science is creative. And that's mm. the thing, you know, sometimes I've met a couple of scientists who go, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't come into this space. You know? <laughs> Once you kind of sit down and think and have a chat about how their work is creative mm. and you're doing the same kind of thing, you know, mm. or artists are doing the same kind of thing, you know, they kind of form up a bit. Mm. And so that's the yeah. real change. Well, I, like I've worked really closely with artists, I mean, scientists for my books. And like I have microbiologists, I mean, crying they've never had the world actually acknowledge because microbiology guys like under a microscope counting <laughs> microbes like it's a pretty laboratory existence but for them it's very magical 
Like, you know, they're, they're in there, they're embodied it, they're like trying to imagine what the symbiotic relationships are between the microbes and why. Mm -hmm. So for someone to come in and try and activate that space for them and then take it to the world, it's really moving. So, so that's like just a beautiful exchange. But then there's like the arts coordinating with planners. Like, I'm really pushing at the moment to, for, uh, there's a few thoughts actually. So one of our thoughts was like, I'd call this a decolonizing space, so bringing mm. arts into the everything world where storytelling mm. is the norm and like embracing um, non-colonial forms of knowledge making is actually kind of where we're at in the cultural space here and through the arts. And then the other one is the idea of breaking down, I guess, what Lauren was kind of talking to about this hierarchical thinking and, um, and what's been used in academia as the more than human because nature's not a good word these days. Anyway, there's no great word for environment, nature, more than human, whatever you want to choose to use, but how to embrace them as, as colleagues and comrades within our existence in everyday life and planning. And I've, I'm always pushing for like the keynote speaker being the soil. And what does that mean? <laughs> like I, I'm really, I'm trying to get someone to fund it. <laughs> actually will push the science, because why it will push the science is because the, the sensors, and it's a technological one, but it's not only olfactory sensors, temperature, humidity, it's actually an awesome communication yes, tool yeah. and it actually enables people to go, wow, what does the soil listen, what does it sound like, Do trees think? what's it trying to tell us? Yep. And so all of those questions just create a whole new brand of questions which then just feed into whole new ways of being. So mm. that's, was that, did I ask the question? That's great, that's fantastic. <laughs> We've only got a few minutes, so let's go to some <coughs> questions. Okay, so uh, you're really fast. Um, I think you've like, uh, articulated really well with this sort of, and couldn't agree more about the sort of storytelling capacity of arts. But I'm also interested, there's been a lot of really interesting artworks about um, actually using art and artists as like data collection. And also, I think like relational artworks that sort of uh, give capacity to communities. Like, I'm thinking of an artwork in Holland where artists work to recapture space and cats and give it back to people to grow or Natalie Jeremenko's sort of um, muscles and that kind of thing. So yeah. I guess like a little bit of comment, not only just on the storytelling capacity, but like the expansive capacity of artists to contribute data back to environmental change. Yeah. Oh, Natalie Jeremenko is um, one of the leading um, exponents of that kind of work. We just need the opportunities for that to happen here and to... <coughs> One of my friends, Dr. Renee Beale, who's now um, at the Royal Society for Non-Science Work as a lead. I was going to say, talk to her about soil stuff because she would absolutely do that. <laughs> Renee Beale. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, she when I met her, she was embedding um, artists in the chemistry lab and no one knew. And I'm like, how have you been this years? <laughs> okay. And uh, she used to run this lab and so we did a series of... Uh, always collaborated with her ever since, but I think everything is collaboration yeah. now and if there's opportunities. So that data collection back to science or put embedding artists in all kinds of projects. Which she did a soil see. music, so she did have a chat to her. She did a soil yeah. music and she's one of those people that like is working so hard to get those collaborations. Totally. Royal Society. <laughs> I think all public art sculptures should have ecological function as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Like I don't see why not. Like we've got to get as much especially in an urban environment. It should be totally co-designed. Yeah. I was also just going to reflect briefly, it's not just art and science, but art and economy as well. I think yeah. it's really valuable. There's so much at the moment around reflecting you know, some of the work that, that Darren Sharp and others are doing in terms of challenging the, the concepts of, of what's now the sharing economy, the, the platform-stealing capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. um, arts have been at the absolute 
coalface, if you will, of that. We've been absolutely fucked over by the internet from the very beginning. Um, and that shift of the economy um, in that direction. So the arts can reflect that back and have, have been reflecting that back very well. Is it just just fucked over or is there, is there enabling as well? I mean, like, so Amanda yes. Palmer used her platform and she nailed that with Weinstein. Yeah, she nailed totally. that. Yeah. She only did that because she's got the Patreon. And she did it because she's been championing that space from the beginning as Absolutely. an artist, saying, yes, let's do this, let's own this space between me and the people who love me yep. and the art that I'm doing for you because I'm doing it with you. Absolutely. And to me, I think there's enabling Within the, in the internet. Well, completely, yeah. completely agree there is an enabling capacity. The problem is in the current system, yeah. it's extraordinarily difficult. It's Amanda, so difficult. Amanda is one in a million yeah. Yeah. who has succeeded. Percentile's gone space. down. Um, so, yeah. But it is a tricky space, that one. Like, like um, <sighs> Warwick's actually a great example in the space here of using free online platforms to generate an actual cultural transition. It's free, like if we're talking about a new economy and we actually want to share the wealth, share the culture, share the knowledge, like it's, it's like Morag's got a life from it, like she's, got, she's created an existence, sorry, to be a perfect example, a perfect example of using a free platform to develop an entire community that then like does create opportunity I would I would argue that it's it's got that opportunity as well. Yeah, like like if you if you kind of want to give, it's least, I guess it's a culture of giving and sharing that mm. actually then leads to people sharing back. Like that book that I actually put up my e on the story of um, the fossils, that was self published. I raised seventeen thousand dollars on Possible, and it was through like a whole bunch, and that's and that's through some gorgeous patrons that are interested in this work that see it as important. And, and they get something in return and it becomes actually the ultimate new economy. Yeah. And I guess I, yeah, I, I, I would reflect that it's not, it's not the platforms that are the problem, and I think that's Darren's critique as well. Mm. It's not the technology which is the problem, it's the way they're used. Mm. And so, you know, it's Spotify that I critique, it's not the internet. You know, and it, the, the vast difference between, you know, scientists and artists is that scientists are getting paid for mm. the research and development of their work. Mm. And, you know, yeah. 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 that's not why I'm not going to get it's really, really tough out there to make, to be an artist, and you know it is. We're being absolutely screwed. You know, if the New York Times can put out a, a big article in their international edition saying arts funding in Australia is so pathetic, mm -hmm. you know, if you just want American stories sure. and everybody other, everyone else's culture, this is what we have to advocate for, and I think. The arts has such an important mm. role, and anybody who's in it has to just advocate advocate for the arts from the grassroots to, you know, creating operas of, you know, scale. You know, it should be mm. all of it together, which is tree with access for all as well. So, and it's challenging the nature of that, I guess, as well. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, look, we've. We are out of time. There's one more question out the front. Let's just go real, real fast. Mm. Uh, my, my, my whole thing is about participation and, oh, yeah. you know, the arts and especially music, and I say it's because I'm a musician, it's about connection. It's about communication and connection and how we do that as a culture. And I see these barriers to participation. So we can talk about all the amazing work that artists do and it's fantastic and it's engaged with and it should be there, but what about 
why, why are people not playing music for themselves together in their homes, connecting with each other, like in their day-to-day relationships? Because that's where the communication really happens. And my, I guess my question is, how do we, how do we uh, address the barriers that, that we have, where this audience performer dichotomy has been created, audience, yeah, audience performer dichotomy has been created oh, way before Spotify. Yeah. I mean, this, this, this is all the working life, maybe. Yeah. It's going to be It's going to be primary school. auditions. Well, this is what I mean about, yeah. yeah this is education. And yeah. Arts education has to get from the ground floor through kids from, you know, day one, you know. I just, my parents had no money. I'm the first, my sister and I, the first to have a university education. But we had a piano, and they could afford three years of tuition, and my mother says that the arts and culture was the greatest calling in the world, you know, because she wasn't allowed to do it. Mm. And so, you know, that struck the chord with us, and now the three of us in my family are in the arts. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that has to happen, the great teacher. But we have no advocacy. Look at, you know, taking $150 million out of the Australian Council, what it does, because that hasn't been put back, despite what, what happens. And, you know, Creative Victoria, the, fund is, the funds are dwindling. Well, that's all true. But back to the question of participation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is a lot, when we discussed this last night, there's a lot happening at the community level around music. So there's a lot of recognition that since they have a commercial commercialization of music, there's a separation between performer and you know creative individuals. Mm-hmm. Many of us grow grown up with a psychological story that we can't sing is only for those special people. But that's been counted now by a whole lot of community-led singing groups, you, you know, choirs, all that this sort of uh, local-led community groups. Well, I've been involved for many years in some of those as well. Um, and we need to encourage the proliferation of those. So they're starting to balance the story around who should participate and, the crea- and who has the creative right to, to, to be involved. And, it, you know, for me, I guess it's part of my mission to actually upskill, you know, provide opportunities for the general upskilling of musical literacy in our culture, full stop. So if you walk into a room and someone's got a guitar, you can just sit down and anyone can do yep. it. It's like throwing a frisbee in the park. We should have a, um, a, a singing or choir at a conference like this, yeah. that you yeah. join at the start, I'm talking you learn one music song, making, the end of the I'm conference, creative music you close with a, a song that yeah. someone like you has created and we all join in. Mm-hmm. Look, we're going to have to, you, you look really desperate. Yeah, can I just say something really quickly? Um, I'm kind of the guardian of 14 brilliant environmental theatre pieces created by Fox Bandicoot, the environmental education company, and uh, I have I have 14 wonderful environmental education environmental theatre pieces that should be being performed in schools. Cool. If there's any theatre people here, come and see School theatre people. Excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that comment. Thank you, everyone, for that.